We're continuing our series entitled God's Story, Our Story by looking at all of the stories of the Bible, all of the characters of the Bible, all of the themes found in the Bible with the goal of identifying the one story, the story of stories that changes everything. As we began our journey through the book of Genesis, as we surveyed Genesis through Revelation, we established last week who the main character of the story is. God. In the beginning was not you. In the beginning was God. And then we saw also in the beginning that God established his paradigm for how he would operate, how he would move, how he would bring redemption. Remember we talked about that phrase that uh, how we identify the story of creation, creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, that this would be the pattern that we not only see in the very first verses of the Bible, but we would see this pattern of God's redemptive work from Genesis to Revelation. So main character of the story, God. How will God work from Genesis to Revelation? Taking something out of nothing, light out of darkness, life out of death. This is how God will operate, not just in the beginning, but all throughout redemptive history. We're going to turn our attention. We ended with verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1 last week, and we'll pick it up with Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, reading through 25, and we'll skip to 31. Day 6, the creation of humanity in the image of God is way too big a theme and idea to lump in with this passage. So we are going to look at verses 26 through 30 next week. Um, Good Reformation sermon as we looked at the priest of all believers and how it's grounded in the image of God. So we are just going to look at the general creation account and then dig deeper into the creation of humanity next week. So Genesis chapter 1 verse 4 through 25. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it, be, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according to its own kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, planting yield, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
And God said, let the lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs, for seasons, and for days, and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night and the stars. I love this, by the way, just as a sidebar. Remember who Moses was writing to. He was writing to Israelites that just had come out of captivity in Egypt, the place where they worshiped the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is God inspiring Moses to say, you know those stars that you worshiped in Egypt? God made those. You know the sun that they worshiped and the moon that they worshiped? God's bigger and greater and grander than even the things that we worship here on earth. I love how Moses just writes, and the stars, they're all under, all under the authority and the creative power of God. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and birds to fly above the earth and the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great creatures, sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with the waters a swarm according to their own kinds and every winged bird according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and morning the fifth day. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their own kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its own kind. And God saw it and it was good. Verse 31. God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day and on this Lord's day the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our Lord stands forever amen as we established last week Moses writing to a nation that was lost writing to a nation that was confused, a nation that had been living in captivity, a nation that was in between the captivity and the exile of Egypt, the slavery of the Egyptians, and in between their, their arrival into the promised land. This is a nation that is lost and confused and needs to be reminded who they are and where they're going and where they're from. And that is the context in which Moses writes how everything came into being. This creation account, as we see it here in Genesis chapter 1, speaks of God creating something out of nothing in literally six days. There is nothing... In this passage, let me be very clear, from a purely exegetical study that would point to anything other than a literal six-day creation. There is nothing from a purely exegetical study that points to anything other than a literal six-day creation. 
In fact, Hebrew scholars will tell you that the same grammar used in Genesis chapter 1 is the same grammar that you would find in a historical narrative such as Chronicles. So there should be nothing that we read in Genesis 1 that should not lead us to the conclusion that this is literally how God created the heavens and the earth. You might also hear people in our culture speak to the inconsistencies of modern science with creation. Well, I say it's when you look at the gospel narratives and you read about a man that was dead for three days and then rose from the dead, I say it's no, no less inconsistent than what we read in Genesis chapter 1. That just because the resurrection might defy some modern scientific theories does not mean that we dismiss the resurrection. Paul had something to say about dismissing the resurrection as figurative, didn't he? He said if the resurrection didn't literally happen, then our faith is in vain. So just as we do not dismiss the literal bodily, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, we cannot dismiss the literal interpretation of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And so keep that in mind as we study Genesis chapter 1 together this morning. And before we take from the Lord's table, I want to simply highlight two things concerning the creation narrative. I want to highlight the design of creation, and I want to highlight the beauty of creation. Point number one, the design of creation. What you can see here in verses 4 through 25, which I know for some of you, you were like, wow, this passage goes on and on and on. I did that for a reason. So that you would be able to be reminded that there is nothing random about the creation of the heavens and the earth. Do you not see how meticulous God was day by day creating the heavens and the earth, each day having such detail, each day having such order, each day has its own purpose because each day reveals something about who God is. And so God takes takes us through every single day to show us the design of creation. Why? Because the design points to a designer. That the reason we see order and purpose and design in creation is to point us that there must be a chief designer. That what we see written here and what we experience in the created world cannot be because of random chance. That there must be purpose. That there is design in our universe and in our world. And there's design right here in the pages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1. Remember the condition in which God is creating the heavens and the earth. We left off last week by saying that the world was what? Formless and void. So he creates and it's formless and void. And then what does he do? What did we just read? In this formless and void heavens and earth that has no structure and no form, we see the creation account. And this is what God does. 
In days one through three, he continues to build the form, the formless void of the heavens and the earth. In days one, two, and three, he creates the structure, he creates the form, and then in days four, five, and six, he fills it. Do you see what he does here? The purpose and the order and the intentionality of the grand designer, God, of the heavens and the earth. Days 1, 2, and 3, he creates the form. Days 4, 5, and 6, he fills the form. Day 1, he creates the heaven, heavens. In day 4, what does he do? He fills it with the sun, the moon, and the stars. In day 2... He separates the sky above from the water below. But then in day five, he fills it with birds and with sea creatures. Day three, he creates dry land. Day six, he fills it. You see the pattern here. Creates the form, and then he fills the form. It fills the void with all of the land creatures and sea creatures and birds and sun and moon and stars. And we will even look at the creation of mankind next week as we look at Genesis 1, 26 through 30. But don't miss it. The design, the order, the purpose. There is nothing random. There is nothing chaotic about the creation of God. Now, obviously, to the contrary of a created orderly universe would be what? the theory of evolution. And we don't have enough time in a sermon like this or a context like this to dig deeper into all of these theories. Um, But even the most honest, genuine um, adherent to the theory of evolution has to admit and acknowledge that evolution doesn't give us any clarity or answer for where matter came from. The honest atheist or the honest uh, believer in evolution even has to admit that matter, given time and chance, has just progressed into the world we know today. Uh, I I heard one person um, say that evolution is like a tornado going through a junkyard and all of a sudden you have a 727. We don't know how it happens or how it works, but it just, bam, it just happens. It doesn't seem very plausible. And so Moses is wanting to be intentional. Nothing random. Nothing happens by chance. A distinct order. But what what are the implications of this design? If design demands a designer, what are the implications for us? Well, the first implication is that Christianity, contrary to popular belief, Christianity is the basis for modern science. Yes, don't believe what they tell you, that Christianity is not consistent with modern science. It's the base and the foundation for all true science. Now think about it, science and Eastern religions. Eastern religions teach you that the world is a figment of the imagination. It's hard to study something that's just the figment of your imagination, right? So creation and science and Near Eastern religions don't really coincide and go together. How about the pagan religions? Polytheistic religions that believe in multiple gods and many gods. Well, they believe that uh, that the world was made through uh, the pagan gods warring with each other and battling with each other, and this world is just a, a result of all of the gods battling. So we see a, a chaotic world. We see a chaotic universe. No, Christianity is the religion that gives us fixed rules and laws and design and order in the midst of utter chaos. You see, Christianity 
Christianity as the basis for modern science teaches us that there is a design, therefore there is a designer, and we can study it. We can study this design in order to know more about the designer and the heavens and the earth that are created. Now let me say just as a side note, if you're a student out there, you're a middle school student or a high school student, a university student uh, that maybe is wrestling with a career in science and you're a believer, don't let anybody tell you that that is not a worthy profession or that you need to abandon your faith. I can't think of a more worthwhile goal than to be a Christian with a Christian worldview, to be able to show the world that everything you see, everything you witness in this created universe ultimately points us to a chief designer. But all, the other implication for the design of creation is it serves as the basis for human flourishing. You see, if all of this is random and we just live in this utterly chaotic world with random things happening here and random things happening there, there can't be any order in the world. There can't be any order in your life. But you see, remember we established last week that the word of God brings what? It brings order. It brings peace. And so what a lesson, grandparents and parents, for our children that the reality of God, the existence of God, the design of the universe means there's also a design for your life. And when you live contrary to the word of God, there's chaos and there's disorder that God not only has a design for this universe, but he actually has a design for your life. And when you live in opposition to God, what happens? Chaos and disorder. But when you live in harmony with God and his word, there actually is a design which leads to blessing and leads to flourishing. So point number one, the design of creation. Point number two, the beauty of creation. The beauty of creation. Why does creation draw us in? You know what I mean? We go to the beach. We go to the, to the mountains. We're amazed by the allure of creation, right? Even little kids staring out into their backyard and they say, mom and dad, there's an iguana out in the backyard. Our kids are amazed, right? Even I'm amazed by the size of an iguana, right? And it's just absolutely amazing to us. It's the allure of creation. Well, David tells us, we read this passage a few weeks ago. Psalm 19 tells us what? The heavens declare the glory of God. Because why? Because the heavens and the created order are beautiful and they point us to the beauty of God. You see, this is the beauty of creation that allures us and brings us in, that we're amazed when we see a beautiful scene, amazed when we see, uh, when we travel and we see the beauty of God's creation, we're amazed by it. And it leads me to say, the, do you understand the stubbornness of humanity to worship the creature instead of creation. The created order. God created the heavens and the earth not to be worshipped, but so that it would point us to the beauty of the creator. So the beauty of creation pointing us to the beauty of the creator. It should lead us to worship him. Francis Collins was a foremost scientist. He's actually currently the director and the chairman of the National Institute of Health. He was at one time a devout atheist. 
Uh, but while he was working at a hospital, it was actually one of his patients that challenged him to think a little deeper about the God that you so quickly dismissed. Eventually, Francis Collins said the idea of God became plausible, but he still wasn't fully convinced until what happened. And we have the quote, his own personal testimony. A full year had passed since I decided to believe in some sort of God. And now I was being called to an account. On a beautiful fall day, as I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi, the majesty and beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance. As I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful and unexpected frozen waterfall hundreds of feet high, I knew the search was over. The next morning, I knelt in the dewy grass as the sun rose and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. What a testimony. The beauty and the glory of the heavens and the earth pointed him back to the beauty of God. You see, the reason creation is so beautiful is it has something that you and I don't have. Did you notice how every day and every stage of creation ended by God declaring something? You see, at the end of every day, God declared that what he created was good, very good. That was God's way of showing that my creation has my favor and my blessing. But what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is the tragedy of tragedies. Because at one point, we too shared in that blessing. We too had that word. We too had the word of God that made us beautiful. But in Genesis chapter 3, we lost it because of the fall. And so by nature, creation has something that you and I don't have, the blessing and the favor of God. But there's good news, really good news. Jesus Christ came and the one who lived perfectly and lived according to the design of the designer lost the blessing and favor of God so that you and I would ever forever have the word of favor and blessing from God our Father. You see, all throughout our lives, we are trying to get the word from our creator, from our father that says, you are good, you are very good. And children are trying to get it in their classrooms with a sticker chart. And adults are trying to get it by getting employee of the month and everything in between. We long for the blessing and favor and the approval that our soul longs for. And let me tell you something. Our souls will never be at rest until we have that favor and that word of blessing. A young man living on the West Coast caught wind that his father had a massive heart attack and he needed to return to Tampa immediately. When the young man arrived to the hospital, he was told that you just missed your father by 30 minutes. He passed. He broke down into tears and he goes out into the he goes out into the waiting room crying and wailing and cannot stop crying, overwhelmed with grief. And people are trying to console him and comfort him. And he says, it's not the loss of my father. 
that's causing me to cry. It's, I wanted the blessing. I wanted my father to one time look me in the eyes and look me in the face and say, I am proud of you, son. You've done good, boy. And I never got it. And I guess I never will. It's the blessing and the favor you and I crave for the creator God to look down upon you and say, good, very good. So how do you get it? The only way you and I can receive this word of blessing is to be connected to the one who had the blessing first. You see, Jesus Christ at his baptism, God announces what? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. But it would be in the garden and on the cross that Jesus Christ would not hear those words. Instead, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus hears nothing. It would be on the cross that Jesus hears nothing. Because it's in that moment that Jesus takes on the curse, that Jesus takes on everything that you and I deserve, and in return by faith, what do we receive? The good word of God, the blessing and the favor of the Father. He got what we deserve, and if we believe in him this morning, we will get what he deserved. This morning, before we go to the table, I invite you to hear a new voice. You see, every day, no matter what age you are, you hear a hundred different voices in your head. You're a student. You walk into youth group and you walk into your classroom every single day and you hear the voice that you somehow got to win your friend's approval. You hear the voice that you are not good enough and that you are not loved. You might be married here today and you are craving the approval and the favor of your spouse and you're sitting here today saying, I'm not good enough, I'm, I, I'm not beautiful enough, whatever it might be. And all of us have these voices ringing, these messages ringing in our mind constantly every single day. I'm not good enough. And what Jesus Christ came to do is he says, you're right, you're not good enough. But I am. And if you place your faith and trust in me, you will hear the words that you are craving to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. I invite you to hear a new voice this morning. The voice of the Father, through Jesus Christ, who can look down on you this morning and say, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And you are my precious daughter, beloved, child of God.